All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Tech and Operations. We've got Sean with Downhold Diagnostics. Um, howdy, howdy. What's up? Um, we're here to talk about raw pumps and uh, what the heck they do. How do they fail? What do you do to troubleshoot them? How do you optimize them? The, you know, from square one to, uh, you know, as complicated as we feel we need to dig into. So I'm really excited for this podcast today because we've talked about plunger lift. We're kind of advancing our way through rod pump, soon to be gas lift. So Sean, tell us about yourself. Tell us about, okay. you know, downhole, downhole diagnostics and your background. Why, why are you the industry expert or one of them on rod mm. pump? Let's hear it. Um, I don't know if I'm the industry expert. I am a little You're bit up more there, visible. man. You're definitely up I, there. I, I, I've got information on my website and uh, uh, somehow I'm on the front page of Google and uh, out competing some of the larger companies to, uh, uh, to get higher up in the rankings, but that's because I put information out. So uh, yes. Yes. basically in a, nothing special about me, except I work hard, but uh, basically, so I, I graduated from Texas A&M in 2009 with a uh, with a degree in petroleum engineering minor in geology came out to west texas i'm from san antonio but came out here i worked for a smaller operator for five years as a production engineer um and it was it was uh it was a good company a lot of hands-on operation so i was out on drilling rigs out on pulling units writing up procedures supervising uh workovers and just kind of uh you, you know at the smaller companies you wear a lot of hats you don't get kind of caught in one uh, niche or bubble. So anyways, I did that for five years. I, uh, I had a real strong interest, I guess, to apply myself. Um, and basically I'm self-taught on rod pumping. Uh, I just, when I was younger and single with no kids, uh, I would spend a lot of my time going to the Midland library, uh, reading a lot of the rod pumping books out there. Most of our production was rod pumping. Um, and really I learned probably most of it from the, uh, the papers presented at the Southwestern Petroleum Short Course. So if you get their catalog, you can actually buy it. Um, if you look them up, you can get a, a copy of all of their papers for about $300 going back to the 1950s. You can keyword search the PDFs. It's actually quite amazing. I would highly recommend it to anybody. But basically reading papers just in self-study on my own, um, and especially a lot of the papers from Echometer are fantastic. But got kind of uh, expert in rod pumping, uh, talked my company into buying Echometer equipment um for uh dynamometer testing fluid level shots that sort of thing and uh ran around with the equipment a lot of times on the weekend because i didn't have the time um during office hours so i'd spend time out on the weekends at the wells just trying to understand them and uh so i worked there for five years great experience but then i decided you know i want to try and venture out on my own and maybe i can go do this kind of rod pumping uh diagnosis and optimization sort of thing so i've been doing that since 2014 I'm coming up on eight years right now, which is actually kind of amazing. Um, and I'm just I'm a one man shop, so I don't have any employees. Maybe in the future, I'll look at it. But uh, so I've been running around, basically acquiring data, fluid level shots, dynamometer data, optimizing POCs, um, doing some rod design, rod lift consulting. Mm -hmm. I work for a lot of small companies. Um, most of them, nobody's ever heard of, like a lot of mom and pops, and then also some some larger customers, but uh, it's basically it. It's just kind of trying to uh, get data on the wells, diagnose them, understand where they're at, and then basically transform that data into how do you take the well in its current conditions? How do you optimize the way it's operating right now? But I think uh, maybe most importantly, what do we do the next time we need to pull the well? 
Totally. So once you have the data, you have something to, to base a decision off. You know, maybe we want to downsize the pump. Maybe we need to speed up the strokes per minute or slow it down, um, just depending on the feedback you're getting from the well. Unfortunately, a lot of companies don't get enough feedback. They don't do enough testing. And so when it comes time to the well has a failure, what you really should be doing is, is relying on the fluid level dynamometer data to see, do I need to make some changes next pull? Do I need to change the gas separation design? Do I need to do something? So basically that's, that's what it's been. It's been a good run. Um, and it's just, you know, so it, it's kind of interesting. I'm an engineer. Um, I, I work for an operator, so I know what operators want. I was an engineer, you know, um, you know, managing a lot of people in the field, but I, I'm actually in the field now. So it's a little bit different. A lot of times you don't find the engineers in the field. They're, they're working remotely. They're watching wells by SCADA, um, looking at, you know, pump off controllers, that sort of thing. But I'm actually out there getting dirty out in the field. So for eight years, that's, huh? that's awesome, man. Congrats for making yeah, it. Yeah, it's where it's been great. It's been good. Uh, so you mentioned something which was very interesting, uh, which is everything. You know, you got an echo meter, uh, you know, gun when you were working with this uh, EMP before you started downhole diagnostics. Do you have to have an echo meter to be good at getting a rod pump to the state it needs to be in? Like, because because here's here's definitely. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, definitely, right? Like, if you don't definitely. have definitely echo meters, they're, they're pretty much the only game in town. So I don't think there is a substitute. So, so, well, there's, there's pump off controllers. A pump off controller will give you a dynamometer card, sure. um, but you, you want to calibrate these with echo meters and I can go into it later, but you want to calibrate it with a portable echo meter dynamometer to make sure it's drawing you correct cards because right. um, they calculate position differently than the echo meter does. Um, and essentially there's a lot of times where the cards are skewed or slanted or something's off. Um, and it's good to calibrate and just make sure that they're, they're drawing similar. And if, you know, the echo meter anemometer cards are drawing different than the POC. You want to figure out why. But uh, yeah, you certainly need echo meter. Um, th there's a couple of knockoffs. They're not, I don't even know if they're still in business, but echo meter, it's, it's fantastic equipment. Yeah, that's the name of the game is echo meter. I like that. I mean, it's pretty much it, but they're also like leading the industry and like, um, you, you know, R&D and like constantly out there putting papers out. I mean, it's uh, it's a fantastic company, but you certainly for fluid level shots, you, you need it. Um, of course, a lot of people have POCs and they think that's sufficient, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. say it's sufficient. Let's start there, dude. Let's bust that myth because there's a lot of people out there who are like, well, I've got my POC running. My cards look pretty decent. You know, my fillage is not too bad. I don't have too many shutdowns a day. I'm looking pretty good, but they've never looked at where the fluid level is. You know, that, that's something that they haven't really investigated. So why why would we want why, why are cards good but you also need to have the the fluid level shots like why why is that so important tell us about that well you 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 want to verify um in and, and I, I would agree i mean if you've if you kind of know where the well is it's not like you need a fluid level shot every day or every week or even every month um sure. it depends on the well but you you certainly need a baseline to know where it's at um, there's a lot of times where gas interference, it's, it's very similar to fluid pound, um, and you wouldn't know it based off the shape of the card. And I can, I can show an example later. I was checking a well just recently. The cards look like fluid pound, but the fluid level shot shows that it's got 300 feet of gas-free liquid of the pump. Um, and so if you just look at the card shape, wow. you would say it's fluid pound, and it looks exactly like fluid pound. And fluid pound and gas interference are similar. They both have gas in the pump, uh, but with gas interference, you've you typically, you've got a, a higher pressure gas that gets sucked into the pump. 
Um, as opposed to fluid pound, that means there's no, basically you've, you've pumped a liquid level down to the well, you can't yes. get enough liquid in to fill the pump on the upstroke. But so you, you want to verify these sort of things because if you just look at a dynamometer card, you would say, hey, the well's pumped off. And then the next time you pull it, what changes are you going to make? Well, we don't yep. need to make any changes to the, the downhole gas separator. And, you know, essentially on this well that I'm speaking about that I just tested recently, they had a very poor downhole gas separator. They had a one inch dip tube and a, a joint of two and three eighths tubing. And uh, the downward fluid velocity was about 11 inches per second. You want it to be less than six inches per second, ideally less than four. And uh, basically running calculations, I think if we upsize to a three and a half inch mother hover, they were gonna get the downward fluid velocity down to about 3.6 inches per second. So anyways, that they weren't producing the well at maximum capacity. And based on a dynamometer card, they might say, hey, that's a fluid pound card. It's pumped off. Everything's fine. Um, but you, you want to verify that with a fluid level shot. Of course, if it's an old water flood lease, you never have gas interference. The well stays consistent. Your runtime stays consistent. You might not need to, to check it as, as frequently, but it just depends on the situation. I would say at least twice a year, you should, you should get kind of a full analysis. Um, with a fluid level shot, a, a, a portable dynamometer, and just make sure if the well's got a POC, that uh, the POC cards are drawing correctly. And of course, a lot of wells don't have POCs. And so you want to be calibrating the runtime. Um, you know, the inflow to the well can change or the pump can wear and the, you know, the pump can wear it. You might need more runtime to pump it yeah. off. So there's a lot of reasons. You, it's just a, a, a general, you know, I mean, wells are expensive. They make uh, money sometimes, I guess, depends on the price of oil. Sure. And, uh, but you just want to keep track of them and not just have something out there running, assuming it's working properly, especially due to the fact that most field personnel and pumpers are not, they're not well-trained on uh, pump-off controllers. Yeah, so, you can't be good at everything, right? They're, they're generally- Yeah, you can. I mean, there, there should be more training for the field personnel, at least for recognizing and troubleshooting POCs, but it's, it's just not very, it's not mm -hmm. very common, so. All right, so we've got two key things. We've got uh, download cards that are very important. We've got fluid level shots that are very important. And I wanna you know, talk about how that eventually leads us to optimization and failure diagnostics and such, but, if you tell us a little bit about um, the, the fluid level shots and then a little bit about card diagnostics, um, I wanna understand those at, at a general level. And then I wanna kind of move past into like maybe the, the optimization and the, the failure side, but uh, fluid level shots, like, um, you know, what, what is that trying to tell us? You know, uh, what, can it, what can it be used for, right? You know, holes and tubing and such maybe. Um, and then like, what have you seen uh, People are making commonly mistakes when they do fluid level shots. You've done them all, mm. tons of wells. Uh, what is something someone can avoid doing to make sure they are accurate? Um, so a fluid level shot, you hook up a fluid level gun to the well. You can shoot down anything. You can shoot down cave casing. If a well's got a failure, you can take a shot down tubing. But typically, you're shooting down the casing, down the annulus. Um, you can shoot on any form of artificial lift, except... Uh, a jet pump, because on a jet pump, you're pumping liquid down casing and you're getting liquid back up the tubing. I mean, if it's off, you could shoot it, but um, you could shoot gas lift, ESP, rod pumping, plunger lift. Uh, but basically with a fluid level shot, you're gonna determine where the top of the fluid level is. Um, so how far it is from surface. And uh, you're also going to uh, be able to approximate how much gas-free liquid is above the pump. 
-hmm. Okay, so uh, you basically determine where's the top of the fluid level. There's uh, you you would uh, typically let's just say on a rod pumping you up well you would do a casing pressure buildup test, and based on how fast the casing pressure increases during that fluid level shot, you can it throws it into um, echo meters S curve correlation and it's going to compute a um, gas free liquid above the pump. And so based off that, you can determine how much pumpable liquid is above your pump, you know, rod pumps or ESPs or anything, they can move gas, but they're not designed to. Ideally, you want to separate all the gas, it goes up the annulus, only liquid goes into the pump. Uh, but you can see how much pumpable liquid is above there. And of course, the liquid is the largest component that creates the, um, uh, the downhole pressure. So Basically, that, that gas-free liquid is going to be the main factor contributing, unless you have extremely high surface casing pressure, that's going to be the main factor contributing to what is your pump intake pressure, um, and then also your producing bottom hole pressure. And, and ideally, you, you get a well's producing bottom hole pressure as low as possible to maximize uh, reservoir inflow. So um, basically, you're, you're diagnosing. What's interesting is on fluid level shots, you're diagnosing the backside. You know, so you're looking down the annulus of the well. You can also pick up casing leaks or other anomalies. Um, if there's some sort of cavern in the casing um, that, that basically there's a polarity to the fluid level shot to where you can see uh, an increase in area or a de decrease in area. So you mm -hmm. can see anomalous things come up, but you can, you're basically looking down uh, the backside. In contrast with a, a dynamometer, you're actually looking down the rod string. Interesting. Based on based on the load, so you're you're kind of looking at the well down two different sides of it, um, and based on those two, you can when you combine the information together, you can actually get a a, a very complete picture um, as to what's going on. So, um, you know, problems uh, you're asking about what problems with fluid level yeah. shots? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can you can sometimes have. I mean, um, I, I would say getting a good fluid level kick you know an identifiable kick can be one one problem and it depends on the well so if you've got um if you've got a well that's deep that has low casing pressure and maybe it has some background noise to it like it makes gas and especially if it also has other um, changes in annular area so like if it's got a liner top or if it does something sure. interesting or you have a like, for example, if you've got a TAC with a large section of perforations and then the seating nipples way below, especially when you have low casing pressure, it can be hard to get a good fluid level kick. And so I see, uh, I, you know, I mean, I see people send me stuff or I get copies of fluid level shots from other companies and uh, the fluid level is not properly selected or it's unidentifiable. You, you can't say anything is bonafide, the fluid level kick. Um, so that's one of the big problems. The other thing is that there's, there's, there's different ways. So basically, when you shoot a fluid level shot, um, that pressure pulse is, is traveling down, it reflects off the fluid level, and it goes back to the microphone on the bottom of that fluid level gun. But uh, basically, what the, the, the gun is recording is the time that it takes for that pressure pulse to hit the fluid level and come back to the microphone. Okay, but in order to calculate the distance, you need to know the acoustic velocity. So how fast is that pressure wave traveling? Um, and uh, that, that's, a, that's a function of the uh, properties of the gas, but also the pressure um, specifically, those are the most important factors. 
Um, and so typically there, there's three different methods to calculate the acoustic velocity, the standard method, which most people do, and they don't, if they're, if they're real, really novices, they don't even know they're doing it because the software automatically does it, sure. is it, it uses a collar count method. Yep. Um, so basically it's trying to see how many tubing collars does it see in a second. And it converts that you input the average length of tubing into the software and it converts that to basically if it sees this many tubing collars per second, the average length of the tubing is 32.13. Mm -hmm. It can compute how fast that pressure wave is traveling. Um, so it's important to put the average length of tubing, the standard in the software is 31.7, but um, on older wells, so it seems like a lot of the older tubing out there, it's, it's shorter. In a lot of the newer wells, um, you see a lot of longer joints, like 32, you know, 0.65. I mean, much longer. So uh, if you don't have the, go ahead. Schematics, like types of type of tubing would be pretty necessary before you go out there, right? Like, I mean, it's oh, easy. you you really you really want to know, yeah, yeah, and that's that's really important too. Um, you know, what, what's nice is in Echometer's newer software, TAM, which was made and basically integrated with the wireless stuff. There's a wellbore overlay. So you can actually, you build the well file and you can see an overlay of the, on the fluid level shot on the old wired equipment on TWM, which yep. is their old software. There is no well bore overlay, but it's very important to know because there's been many times where I've gone out to a well and I wasn't told that there's a liner top, you know, mm. they just say, Hey, it's five and a half casing. Well, they did it's five and a half casing and there's a four, like a four inch liner down there. That four inch liner can really look like the fluid level. Absolutely. And you, Absolutely. you need to know exactly what, uh, you know, what, what the, the geometry of the wellbore is. Mm -hmm. So, but I mean, it, it's, it's very important to know how you're computing the acoustic velocity and sometimes you can't get a good collar count. And so there's two other methods. There's the downhole marker method. Mm -hmm. If you see a kick and you know what it is at what depth, like a TAC or a perforation, you can mark that and it'll basically compute the acoustic velocity of the gas. And then there's, there's another method where you can try and use the composition of the gas to, to actually calculate it with the surface and bottom hole, um, you know, temperature. Most people don't know what the, the specific gravity is of the gas. And of course it, it's, it's altered if there's, um, um, you know, additional components like CO2, H2S, it's hard to know that, but you, you can also just uh, enter a specific gravity or enter an acoustic velocity. So you might be able to take an offset well where you do get good collars and just take that acoustic velocity, assuming it's got similar casing pressure probably does you know for a lease if it's an offset well producing from the same formation you can just kind of copy it over but it it, it, it that's a very important part most people are not aware of that they just uh they yeah. assume hey i did it the software does the automatic collar count it tells me this is the depth and it's showing the fluid levels 400 feet below the seating nipple and it's like well it's not i can guarantee you the fluid level is not 400 feet below yeah. the seating nipple. It's not and that's why it's so important right like we have to have you know the accurate detection of that kick you know and the, the the depth of it so we could figure out well is my fluid above pump or not uh is it no. 500 feet you know what's going on here so i think you know when when the listeners are thinking about like well why why do i need to be specific about maybe the acoustic velocity because like you know the the point of optimization right is not to have too much of a fluid column built up to where you're holding back all this pressure on the reservoir no. and you can't pump as much right so you know, there's that balance of like, how do I get it lower, you know, 50, 100 feet, right? So where it's, it's like, um, you have to have that detection of where that, that fluid level is to really be able to optimize it. That's why the, the details are kind of necessary here, like Sean's hitting. So um, yeah, I think that's really good um, on the, the fluid level shot there, there, Sean. And then so as that's one part of, you know, 
figuring out, right, um, you know, how do I improve this well's performance? Where's the fluid? Yeah. Um, the second part of it is like, you know, the cards. What you said, okay, we're looking at the backside. We're understanding, you know, that, you know, where, where's the liquid? But also the rod string, right? We're understanding from the rod string side, how is this pump performing, right? So yeah. why, why is that important? How do you use that information? Um, and, you know, walk me through the card side of it in a brief, brief little summary right there before we get over to failures and optimization, but tell me about cards. Um, you know, so, I mean, I really, I always kind of see it as like the, the basis of the analysis is the fluid level shot. So like when you're, when you're analyzing a well, the baseline is, is where's the fluid in the well. So if you take a fluid level shot and the fluid's high above the pump, you know, you've got a lot of fluid above the pump. The question is, is how do the cards look? Hmm. Um, you know, and if let's just say you have hundred percent fillage, that sort of thing, well, that, that indicates you've got more production potential, but maybe you'll find gas interference. Um, and, and you, you can't necessarily pull the, the fluid level down because you're kind of running into a, a gas, you know, gas interference wall, that sort of thing. But I mean, it, it's critically, so the fluid level is kind of the baseline as to how you interpret the cards, the mm -hmm. dynamometer cards. Um, and the dynamometer cards are critically important because the whole point of the pumping unit and the system is to move fluid from the formation into the, into the tubing up, you know, up to serve. I mean, it's to, it's to really, it's to put it in the oil tank and, and, yeah. and make money. But uh, the dynamometer cards show you basically the performance of, of how that pump is performing. And it's, it's, it's quite amazing. You know, the, I mean, both tools are amazing for the fact that you can see so much as to what's going on from surface um, with tools that are um, safe and effective. That's our new favorite term these days, right? Safe and effective. Uh, but you're not, in, you're not introducing anything downhole, yeah. you know? So a lot of times you might have a wireline tool. Well, you're lowering wireline into the well, you've got a risk of it parting, you've got a risk of fishing drops, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. With both of these tools, there's essentially no risk. Mm -hmm. um, but the dynamometer card, I mean, you're, you've got a device at surface that's measuring on the polish rod. Um, basically, it's measuring the surface card. So the surface card is just a plot of the load versus position throughout a stroke length. So you're computing a surface card. Um, it goes through a mathematical equation that accounts for the weight of the rod string, uh, some assumed friction, the dynamics, and then you're, you're computing the pump card, which is the lower card. And that represents what the calculated load is on the plunger. Um, and assuming the calculations are good, you have the correct rod string, there's not some sort of enormous amount of friction going on, um, you know, maybe due to a deviated well or paraffin friction or something like that. The pump card shows how the plunger is picking up and releasing the fluid load throughout the stroke. And based on the shape of that card, you can determine exactly what the, condi the conditions are that that pump is experiencing. Um, so whether that's fluid pound, and basically you can see that there's not enough fluid to fill the, the pump barrel on the upstroke, which should be confirmed with the fluid level shot, um, or uh, you can see gas compression, or you can see you know trash in valves where valves aren't properly sealing, or you have a worn pump, and you can see that the fluid load is slipping off early. And so based on all these characteristics, you can see how the pump's performing, what condition it's in. And when you tie these two things together, you have an understanding of how, what operating conditions the well is in, and then how to potentially optimize it, or at least know why your production's down, you know, if it's gas interference or, or pump wear or that sort of thing. So you, you just get a picture as to what's happening, and then you can make decisions based on that. 
Yeah. And there's almost like, I'm trying to relate the harmony of the two because a lot of people are just like, oh, I can use my cars. That's fine. But the reason that fluid level shot is so necessary, let's just say you've got, you know, 400 feet above uh, pump, right? Um, but you're showing gas interference on your card, right? Is that kind of indicating to you? Because a lot of people look at the card and be like, I must be pretty close to being pumped off. I'm getting gas in the pump, looking pretty good. Um, you know, my fillage is at like 70%. You know, it's, it's like I'm pumping pretty well, but you got a high fluid level. If you don't know you have a high fluid level, you think you're fine, right? Is that kind of telling you a different story? Like, man, I need to probably get a gas separator on this thing, you know, down hole. How is it configured, right? Like, why is it so necessary to have both of those pieces of information to make the right decision? Is that a, a fair example there? Yeah, I mean, you, you can't tell how much fluid is above the pump, really, um, from a dynamometer card. You know, there actually is a way of computing the pump intake pressure um, from the dynamometer cards, sure. but it's not nearly as accurate. And, and that's due to the fact that there's a lot more assumptions going into it. It's not as direct. Um, and so you just, you really wouldn't know how much fluid is above the pump, but he might think, yeah, I'm pumping pretty good, 70% yeah. fillage, but you could have a lot more fluid above the pump than you think. Right. Um, and so you, you really have to integrate the two to understand. And, um, you know, there, there's just a, a lot of situations where it's a, it's a very incomplete picture. You know, I really hate when customers want me to go um, you know, sometimes people try and be cheap and just go do a dynamometer test or something. It, but sometimes you, you look at, you look at cards, it's, it's really, I guess, gas interference and fluid pound, but you know, I, I want the complete picture and it's hard to, yeah. to, to make a recommendation as to how, how are we going to optimize this the next time? What, what changes do we need to make? It's, it's very essential. It, it's just, uh, you know, it's just the, the two sides of the story and you, you need to see it from both sides. And sometimes they completely conflict with each other. So, you know, for example, if you've got, I've seen this many times, if you've got a plugged intake, so you've downhole, you've got a, 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 a gas or sand separator, and if it fully plugs off with solids, mm -hmm. You might shoot a fluid level and you'll see a really high fluid level on the backside, maybe, maybe very, very high, but your dynamometer cards are showing fluid pound with very low fillage. So these are contradicting each yes. other. What do you um, and it, it, well, in, in that case, uh, you have to integrate them both to understand what's yeah. happening. And uh, that, it could be, it could be an indication that either your pump intake is plugged off. I've also seen it though, where the TAC is plugged off, you know? And so in that case, you know, if you've got a if you've got a pump down here and your TAC is right here, if your TAC packs off with solids and you shoot yep. the fluid level, you're going to see probably a large column of fluid uh, above it, right? That that's built up, or you know, at least every time they come do chemical treatments, I mean, you're just stacking the fluid yeah, on it because it's not going lower. Yep. Um, but then your your dynamometer cards in that case are going to show fluid pound or mm -hmm. gas interference, and they could show gas interference because now, if your TAC is a, essentially a packer, all of the gas produced from the formation, you know, it's acting like a packer. All the gas has to go through the pump. Um, and so in that, in that integrating the data from both sides, if you didn't have the fluid level shot, you just think, oh, I've got bad gas interference. I need a better gas separator. But in reality, it might not be the gas separator. It might be your TACs packed off. I think so, that's why the history is so necessary too. Like you were saying, like, you know, every six months to a year, getting that fluid level shot, dynamometer card reading. At least, at least yeah. every six months to a year. And that would be on a, like a simple well that operates normally just to make sure, you know, I mean, I mean, at least your runtime's good. You know, the POC is yeah, What do you recommend? Okay. So I just said six months to throw it out there, but let's just say we're not in a water flood region. It's not like a consistent pumper. It's 
you know, we're in uh, an area that is somewhat challenging. We'll just go middle of the road here. Um, what's your recommendation on frequency here? Like if you've got, um, it's yeah. a good question. You know, I mean, everything's dependent, right? So, I mean, um, uh, it, it it depends on economics. It depends on how much, uh, if you've got your own, most people, most company of well tech, if they've got the staff to check it, it depends on, um, you know, of course, a lot of times the oil price is low. Nobody wants to spend money. Sure. But the question is, is if the well has a failure, are you going to spend the money to go pull it? And if the answer is yes, then you should probably be spending the money to, to try and ensure that it doesn't fail. Yep. Um, it, it also depends, I'd say, on the failure rate of the well. You know, mm-hmm. some wells you want to keep a closer eye on. Um, and other wells, you know, I, I've seen wells that that are just beating themselves up. And, uh, you know, I, I talked to the company. I'm like, you, you got to do like it's got a hard tag you, and it's yeah. pounding fluid like you got to do something. And they're like, well, we acquired that well three years ago and we've never pulled it. And I was like, OK, I mean, if you want to keep running it on hand that way, I mean, I don't think you should. But uh, so it, it, de- it depends on the well. And of course. You know, I, on that particular well, it had a very high oil cut, and it seems like when you have a very high oil cut, you, you know, in a straighter well bore, you don't have as many failures. But it, it depends. So if it, if it's kind of a, um, I mean, if it's, I, I would say at least, at least quarterly. You know, mm-hmm. it depends if you have a POC too. Sure. You know, POC will will help you a lot, and you don't have to to focus as much on them. But if you don't have a POC and it's more difficult, you know, every every couple months maybe. Um, especially if your production's changing or you want to make sure your runtime's appropriately set. But, um, you know, re- really a lot of it, uh, I mean, sometimes when I work for new customers, um, what I, I try to encourage them to do if they don't have much well data or informa- or diagnostic data, fluid level shots and dynamometer tests, is like, let's let's do this more frequently early on and let's get a solid baseline to know exactly where the wells are at because as your wells start to fail, like really you need to be leaning on this data to know what changes should you make. Um, and so if you have a good baseline, then you can start reducing the frequency of the testing. But early on, I would say it's, it's definitely important, but I'd say at least at least quarterly. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's a failure prone well, um, and especially if it's a very expensive well to fix, you know, it might be different if it's a 2000 foot well and it costs you $10,000 for a tubing leak, that's you know, a lot different than a 10,000 foot well for some of these bigger operators where with all their safety policies, they have all these pump trucks on location, they have to kill the well a lot. Um, the the workovers, workovers are expensive, you know, they can be $70,000. Um, and that's, that's a lot of money. So I mean, it, it goes a long ways to try and extend that run life and make sure you catch wells that are tagging early, um, or, or things are appropriate to whatever philosophy you want to pump the well at but it's definitely worth the money um you know uh, as benjamin franklin said an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure you know it's a lot easier to to invest a little bit up front and prevent something instead of neglecting and then having you know a big expensive work workover coming coming your way so yeah and you mentioned something on like the people who don't have pocs let's just say this isn't a stripper right um what are the reasons people would not be um, you know, trying to have good question POCs on wells because I I'm, I just talk from experience here. I oh. worked with a company that had like five under rod pump units, not a single one on POC, and I was like, "Are they making like less than a barrel a day of oil?" And they're like, "No, I mean some of these are like 10, 15 barrels of oil." I'm like, "It feels like that could justify a POC." Why do people not have POCs? 
what do you recommend? I mean, even if they make one barrel of oil a day, my question is always, are you, are you going to pull the well if it fails or are you going to abandon it? And if you're going to abandon it, okay, then maybe we don't have the added yeah. expense. But if you plan on keep pulling it and that's Let's the thing. It, it's, you know, I used to work for an operator too that didn't have a philosophy uh, of having POCs. And uh, I would try and push them. Um, they were a smaller company. So sure. there's, it, it um, and, and they had some POCs and they tended to just be neglected or the pumpers would just turn them off. Hmm. Things weren't working the way they wanted. Um, there wasn't necessarily the staff to go out or uh, people were stretched on the number of wells that they were monitoring and uh or things would break make it easier right i mean if you do it it, right it it definitely does there's also maintenance issues though you've got to periodically pay to fix them i i absolutely agree i don't see any reason why not you know and there's depending on the type of well there's even simpler types of pocs so most people are accustomed to the load cell sure um with the the position sensors like you know your weatherford lofkin and all the all the the main ones but there's also, you know, a simpler like DJAX style, which basically just looks at the rotation of the cranks. Hmm. And if it sees the unit speed up a little bit, you know, 20 thousandths of a second, it assumes when a, when a well, when the pump fillage starts to drop, the pumping unit will actually speed up, mm-hmm. you know, 20, 40 thousandths of a second. And it, it just looks at the, the speed of the crank and it'll shut it down right there. These POCs are great for, for wells where you don't have gas interference and you don't necessarily need the level of control also on these POCs, you know, you don't have to update rod design. You don't have to do anything. You can change the strokes per minute of the pumping unit. You can change the rod design, the plunger diameter. Nobody has to go in and pr- plug in anything because they're just looking at rotational speed. So I, I think there should always be a POC. Um, I'm right there with you, man. I think it's really great. valuable, but it, it's expensive to pull wells, you know, and, uh, it, yeah. it, and a POC is a 24-hour pumper that that yeah. that basically sits there and monitors and for me uh, it's more expensive to lose rate like it's expensive to pull a well yeah. it's also expensive to like lose the production that you're losing because i mean we've seen you know i've, I've personally operated wells where you're like I, I didn't really have to do much effort on this and we increased production by 10 percent. like that wasn't that hard you know we yeah. were just letting it kind of operate you know in its previous uh you know set points and we just never changed them and then made a couple, you know, analysis via echometer. And we were like, why don't we just try X? And we did it. And that seemed to be, you know, the most expensive thing was losing rate every single day. It's not optimized. Yeah, no, there's, there's no doubt about it. When you have more failures, you've got more downtime, especially nowadays, it is, you know, especially nowadays, it's hard to get rigs. Um, pulling units are, are tied up. And, you know, I was helping a small operator recently try and get a pulling unit for a simple pump change. They didn't have many wells and they just needed one rig for one quick pump change and it took them several weeks yeah. to, to get a rig out there to do it and so and there, there are also i mean there's other advantages too you know if you're if you're pounding fluid a lot that, that means there's a lot of the day where of course you're you're wearing your equipment but you're also leading more stuffing box leaks you know which mm-hmm. um you're not moving fluid packing's getting hotter and things tend to leak um yep. also you know, uh, it shut, it'll shut the well down when you have a failure. That way you don't keep it, keep it running, you know, when you're not even moving any fluid. So there's, there's a lot of value. It just really takes, um, I think it just kind of, it's the approach. Some operators think they just want to keep it small and simple um, mm-hmm. and it adds complexity. And of course, you know, if every pumper out there understood the POCs like really well and how to do them, and it's, sure. they're not that complicated. It's just a little bit of training. 
Um, and if they could kind of monitor and get better data off them, I think it makes their job a lot easier. It's a lot easier to adjust runtime with a little computer that's controlling the well as opposed to trying to adjust runtime based on production when the 10 wells go to a battery or you're going to sit around there and look at pump action on a pressure gauge and try and right. determine at what point. And, you know, people are tied up on time. They don't have time to just sit around for 30 minutes at a well, you know, looking at the pump action to try and determine. A, I mean, some people do. There's some good pumpers out there. But uh, I mean, most people, they stay pretty busy and it's, it's just kind of uh, prohibitive time-wise. So I absolutely agree. I always, I always push for POCs and I don't fully understand myself, but people are tied up front. They, they all spin the money down the it. road, but they're tied up front. So I feel like I'm taking crazy pills when I talk to people and it's like, uh, yeah, they're just like, no, it's just something we don't do. It's like, right, yeah, it's, we're just going to move past that conversation because I can't, I can't get through to you on it, but uh yeah, that's always a tough one to have. And, um, you know, for those people who do have POCs, so let's go. So we've talked about basics, right? We hit, we hit, you know, fluid uh, level shots. We've hit downhole cards, kind of usefulness there. We've hit a little bit on POCs. Let's see where we can take this conversation on the optimization and maybe a little bit on the failures you've seen. Um, so tell me when you are, you know, asked to go out to these, um, you know, wells for your customers uh, and they're like, you know, do a blue level shot, do a dyno card analysis, um, see what you can do on optimization. What are your steps there? What's your philosophy around rod pump optimization and how do you do it well without over pumping the well, without damaging the well, without, um, you know, you know, let's just say, for example, sure, if I want to get more fluid out of the well, I'll just like crank that thing up stroke per minute wise, but then you have a shorter life, right? So um, talk to me through your philosophy and what you've seen work well for you. Um, so, I mean, really, you've got to adjust everything to the well, and it depends on the well. I can tell you it's super easy to optimize a well if it's pumped off and pounding fluid with no gas interference. Because mm. um, at that point, it's basically, uh, let's just assume there's a POC on it. Um, it's just a matter of having the POC properly calibrated. It's drawing good cards. Um, it's shutting down appropriately and on fluid pound. I mean, there's not too much question. You want a high yeah. fillage set point. You have 100% liquid fillage, then you pump off, you want to shut it down, you know, as soon as possible. And you don't want all of those additional fluid pound strokes with the fillage dropping low at the end. Um, of course, if the well's on timer, it takes a Why don't a lot you want work. that? Sean, why wouldn't you want those additional strokes for the audience? Oh, those are, I mean, those are damaging fluid pound strokes. So, I mean, a fluid pound's kind of like the plunger doing a belly flop. It's like a belly flop in the pool, you know? Yeah. It kind of hurts. And, Great and analogy. Yeah, it, it, it's a shockwave that, that travels up and down the system. Um, you know, it, it can cause some compression. There's some debates on this, but uh, basically it, it sends a shockwave up, up and down and you're gonna have, you're much more likely to have your lower rod slap into your tubing. Mm -hmm. That's gonna cause some rod wear. It's gonna cause tubing wear. Uh, it's very damaging to your traveling valve ball and, uh, ball and yep. seat. You have the, the ball that's just blown off as it, it basically shoots off on that uh, fluid pound, but that shockwave goes all the way up and down to your, your, your pumping unit and into the teeth of your gearbox. So basically everything is getting knocked around. And so, and there's no point for those, those last strokes. Really if the well's pumped off, out, right? You know, as long as the, the, as long as the, um, the POC is drawing good cards, good rectangular cards, and let's say it shows a hundred percent, sometimes uh, you've got, you've got unanchored tubing or something like that. And even though you have 100% liquid fillage, the POC is reading 90% fillage because it's just looking for that, that flat bottom line as to what it 
considers what it calls the fillage, but uh, let's just say it's a nice rectangular card. I mean, ideally you want your fillage set point high, you know, like 90, 92%. And sometimes it doesn't matter because when it pumps off, it goes from 100% to 50% in the next stroke. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, it doesn't really matter. But sometimes on the wells where the uh, the displacement, um, where the reservoir in, or let me just say it, the, the pump displacement rate is closely matched to the reservoir inflow. Okay, so let's just say a pump's maximum uh, capacity is 100 barrels of fluid a day, and the reservoir is willing to give it 99 barrels of fluid a day, okay, uh, or maybe just say, I don't know, 90 barrels of fluid a day. It's, it's very evenly matched, and so when that well starts to pound fluid, you'll tend to see that that fluid just drop slowly, 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 and, you know, it'd be 99, 99, 98, 98, 97, 97, 96, 96, and, it, and just very slowly, and in that case, you're, you're probably going to want a higher fillage set point because you you ultimately you want to avoid these damaging strokes mm -hmm. um, and give it downtime and allow for, for fluid buildup. So it just kind of depends on the well. And so you have to kind of keep all of these, these things in mind. Um, but ideally with fluid pound, it's really easy. You just want, you want hundred percent fillage. And when it's not hundred percent fillage, you want to shut it down. Sure. And, and it would be even best if you could somehow shut it down one stroke before the fluid pound, but that's yeah. not technically feasible. You don't know when it's going to pound fluid until it does and so you just want to shut it down early gas interference which is a huge problem in the industry yep. now that's the problem um, it is the problem i mean if uh it keeps me busy it keeps me in business <laughs> yeah. and um but gas interference is a whole nother story and uh really there it's kind of difficult like if i'm optimizing a well for a customer and it pumps off i know what to do if it's gas interference it's kind of like me asking, what's your operational philosophy or how good of a well is this? You know, do you, uh, a lot of times if it has gas interference, companies will just turn them on hand, you know, and it just depends on the fillets or they'll set a really low fillage set point, maybe, you know, even like 30% in for a five minute downtime. It's just like, when we get really low, we're going to shut it down and we're going to stop pumping in. But uh, obviously if you have a high fillage set point with gas interference, your runtime is going to fall to the floor. Yep. and your production is going to drop off. And so it's a matter of pumping through it. And so it just kind of depends on, it also depends on the price of oil. You know, when, when oil went down to $30 a barrel or we were in the twenties a year and a half ago, there were a lot of companies that were much more willing to, I don't, I don't want to pull this well. I don't want failures. And so I don't want any of these damaging strokes, but then once you get up to a hundred dollars a barrel now, it's like, I need the oil production, like the, the market it. wants it. Yeah. The market wants it. I need to sell it. Let's get the oil out. So uh, it's really kind of a company philosophy and it's, it's, it's much harder um, to set that sort of thing. And it kind of depends on, you know, I mean, I could make that decision if it was, I was the operator, but since I'm a service company and I'm working for them, it's kind of like, how do you want to pump it? Right. Right. And it is, it's, it's difficult and it really depends on the philosophy. I know some companies that still, um, they still don't want failures. And so uh, they're kind of, you know, it depends on the runtime too. I mean, if, if, if you shut it down for some of the day, it, you know, if the gas interference isn't too bad and the fillage stays pretty high, they're, they're okay with it. But I know some companies that still want a fillage set point at 70 or 80%, um, even if your runtime's down at 50%, you mm. know, and then there's other companies where, are you crazy? Like we're pumping through that. Um, most companies are like that. We're going to pump through that and we're going to get more production. So really, it's a, at that point, it becomes a time value of money equation. It's like, look, do you want this now or do you want it, you know, over the next one year? You know, what's the cost of that pumping uh, pump pool going to cost you? So it kind of comes down to an economics, right? Because you're going to assume things economics. 
You're going to assume yeah. you're going to damage your, your pump more by doing more damaging strokes, but you're going to accelerate that production forward because you're not shutting in as long. So you're going to have a higher daily production. But the question yeah. is, what's that payoff for you? And, and does that make sense for your company? So I guess that's a good point that it really does come down to well, what is your operational philosophy? What's your tolerance to risk and to yeah. uh, pump failure? And so it's, it's, it's different for different companies. It really, it really, really is. And the, you know, the industry lost that mindset for a while. Um, I don't know what year it was, but it was all about production, you know? And uh, that's why kind of shareholders kind of threw their hands up at the oil industry because um, everybody was taking their revenue and plugging it back into the ground sure. and never returning, never returning anything to the shareholders. And now we were seeing a lot more fiscal discipline where, where companies really are, you know, an oil company's goal is not to produce oil, it's to make money. Mm -hmm. And you produce oil to make its profit, you know, you produce oil to make profit, but it's not just to build reserves and build production. Yeah. And it used to be that way for a while, but we, you know, we've got slammed so bad that even right, even right now, I mean, um, you know, activities slower than it used to be back in the day, because companies are more focused on, on that profitability and returning value to shareholders. And that's, that's kind of, uh, it's the same game that you have to consider with, with, with rod pumping, how much, uh, you know, how hard do you want to pump it? Like, in because of course you can just flip them all on hand, you know, totally. and, and you see that a lot with gas interference and it, it depends how bad the gas interference is, but sometimes you almost have to, you know, there's some wells that have terrible gas interference. Um, and I, I, one customer in particular, um, they have theoretically the best gas separators on the market. And there's probably some gas separator companies listening right now, hoping I'm going to mention their gas separator, but actually their pumps are sumped below the bottom perf by a hundred feet. And that is the best gas separation. It's the natural gas separator, but I don't want to offend any of my friends. I got a lot of friends at different hey, gas separators. Hey, that, man. I'm, I'm a big <laughs> guy. I love it. Uh, the <laughs> best natural separator is letting that water fall down, right? Like, I yeah, love yeah. It. I mean, uh, in, but uh, uh, some of these wells have terrible gas interference. And basically, the, the conclusion we've come to is that the gas is emulsified. Um, oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah, yeah. It, it's basically, it's tied up in small bubbles. And you can't really separate it, even sure. when they... Even when you get your downward fluid velocity, you know, down below two inches per second, which yeah. is phenomenal, yeah. should be yeah. perfect, still bad gas interference. Yeah. And so there, there is no, unless you put in a de-emulsifier downhole to, to try and break it out, which would be expensive. And I don't know the feasibility or the economics of that. Um, but so sometimes, you know, in those situations, I mean, they just run them on hand and a lot of times they've got 30 to 40% fillage and that's, that's the way they run them. Uh, the good thing about gas interference, though, is it's not as damaging uh, as fluid pound on a stroke per stroke basis. You know, the, the damaging thing about gas interference is if, for example, if you can upgrade the gas separator and get rid of the gas interference, gas interference is very damaging for the fact that you have to run the unit a lot more than you would normally. Yes. Um, but if you actually look at the damage of a single stroke in comparison to fluid pound, you have a much more gradual uh, fluid load released where you don't have that same shock impact. Yeah. So on a stroke to stroke basis, it's not as damaging, but if you look at it in totality in the fact where you maybe could run the well on 60% if it pumped off, but with gas interference, you're running at hundred percent of the day. Well, you've got another 40% um, of the day where you're actually got the unit going up and down and you're, you're putting cycles on your rods. You're, you're doing everything else that, you know, of course, electricity and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. There's, Again, I think it all plugs into an economic equation at some point, right? 
Like, yeah, but there is no like mass per there's no Excel spreadsheet that you can like true. Send me the data on the well. Let me plug it in. I'll tell you what fill set point to set it at, you know. Yeah, when you get that one done, Sean, send it over. Yeah, yeah. I there there would be some people, I'm sure, that would dispute it. That would be a <laughs> an interesting spreadsheet, how that would compute. But um yeah, so it really it really comes down to like kind of an operator interpretation. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's the right answer there. It really is a a, a per operator philosophy risk mm. Yeah, that's sharp. Um, all right, so uh, with, you know, on optimization, it really comes down to preference. Um, there are damaging strokes, and there are less damaging strokes that happen at a higher frequency, maybe per day. Which you know, again, uh, optimization is good. And I was just going to say, the most damaging stroke, though, I mean, to a large degree, is tagging, though. And oh, absolutely. Just that, that you know. Uh, I mean, so I mean, most of the time, you find well, it's tagging on bottom. You know, pumps. You want to space them close to bottom. Um, just why do you want to space them close to close to the bottom there, Sean? So I mean, it, it basically it maximizes. It's better for gas interference. Okay, so I mean, if you've got a, a standing valve right here and your trailing valve right here, okay, if you've got a stroke length and your stroke length's here, it's better if you actually have your trailing valve space closer. So at the bottom of the stroke, it's almost hitting itself because basically this this dead space that's between the valves um, basically allows for gas expansion and gas compression right. right and so people always want to space them close on bottom you know i see a lot of people that make mistakes though um you know especially a lot of the old timers you know if it ain't bumping it ain't pumping <laughs> if it ain't bumping it ain't pumping that needs to be a t-shirt sean i like that. i think that it probably is uh it's a great quote but you know i mean you don't always need them space close to bottom and i see everybody focusing on this and i think everyone needs to realize that if you're in a old water flood or if you're in a conventional well where your pump is sumped and you never yeah. have gas interference, you don't need to worry about it. You only run the risk of having it tagged by trying to space it like extremely close. And so that's a an issue I see some operators makes. They just, yeah, so you got to space it close. You got to space it close. Well, if you don't have gas interference, you don't have to space it close. Um, but if you do have gas interference, you do want it close, but then you start running the risk of tagging, especially with fiberglass rods, especially fiberglass rods if the well runs fast. Mm -hmm. um, and tagging tends to happen much more if the pump fillage is changing due to the dynamics based on when the when the fluid load is released on the stroke. Um, you can start to uh, basically change the dynamics uh, of the rod string and when uh, the fluid load is released, you can start to have the plunger space lower. Also, right. you can space a pump after the pull, the pump space higher, but as the as the fluid level pulls down and your pump intake pressure drops, your plunger tends to naturally move lower. And so a well that wasn't tagging initially might start tagging several weeks after the pull, and you just got to be observant of that. But that that is the most damaging. And sometimes you find unbelievable, you know, ten thousand pound tags, which means your rods are just your the top of your pump is hitting itself, and then all the rods there, basically the bottom ten thousand feet of rods are being bent into the tubing, um, and then above, you know, depending on how hard the tag, if it's a 10k tag though, 10,000 pound tag, you got 10,000 foot or 10,000 pounds of rods, and so that's why we run, you know, to a large degree sinker bars. You know, they're they're a bigger, stronger rod, and uh, are much more capable of handling handling those sort of bending moments in the rod string. Um, but especially yeah, if you've got busting the myth of it being bumping, game pumping because it ain't necessary, and it's the most damaging way to get. Um, uh, you know, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes you sometimes it actually it's funny. There's one well um I was working for kind of a new customer. I'd worked for him for a little bit before, but usually like if I work for a customer, I kind of know their 
philosophy. I actually raise and drop rod strings too, kind of like a roustabout, yeah. you know? Sure. Um, if you install a horseshoe load cell like dynamometer from Echometer, you have to stack the rods out. If you can stack the rods out on the wellhead, it's no problem to move the polish rod clamp and, and, and respace the well. So for most of my customers, if I find a well tagging, um, they uh, basically, they, they don't want it tagging. I mean, it's, it's the very rare situation but I was working for a newer customer and I found it tagging. I was in bad reception. I didn't exactly know, but I'm like, they don't want it tagging like this. So I picked the rods up and I'll be that foreman called me the next day and said, our well's not pumping. He's like, you, well, I heard you took it off of a tag. And I was like, yes, sir. Yeah. I mean, it would, there was no need for it to tag. There was no gas interference. Like there's no value. He's like, well, this well doesn't pump if it doesn't tag. And I was like, no i was like come on man i was like all right yeah take a picture of the dyno take a picture of the poc and uh and show me the card and let me just see you're you're interpreting this right and if it's not if it's not pumping i'll come put it back on the tag and i'll be damned it wasn't pumping and they say this one it won't pump and um i don't know it i would assume you'd have to assume it's solids related issues because there's there's two reasons to have a tag. If you do have a tagging, you've got the maximum compression ratio, which helps with gas interference. But really, your compression ratio, if you take it half an inch off a tag, is basically the exact same. You're not really doing much benefit for, for gas mm -hmm. interference. But um, but solids, though, sometimes you get solids and valves, and you need, yeah. I mean, by actually knocking them, you, you can get a well to pump. And sometimes you're forced to, but it's like the rare, mm -hmm. the very rare oddity where that happens um and they said this one it has to and it wasn't pumping when i got back there so i put it back on a tag and the rare exception, the, anomaly. the anomaly it is it is but yeah you got to be you got to be careful with tagging though because a lot of times you have it on a light tag you could be extreme um uh, you pretty much only want to let's say you'd only want to do this with steel rods fiberglass rods the spacing changes so dramatically uh a light tag goes to an extremely hard tag um unless it's pumping super slow but the or, or it's a very shallow well and there's not as much fiberglass but uh but yeah on on a steel rod string you can kind of do it but still you can have a tag that's just like a little bump all of a sudden turn into a three thousand pound tag and if you're doing this all throughout the day that's that's probably the most damaging uh, type of stroke you can have much worse than, than than fluid pound because you have real compression. So when you look at a, a fluid pound card, you know if the bottom flat line uh, basically represents zero load on the plunger. Typically on fluid pound cards, you don't see a negative load there where it actually pounds fluid. You see it lose the load, and you have that shock wave where there's kind of a an impact. But then the bottom of the card still stays on the zero line. Occasionally, and sometimes more associated if you have a plugged intake. Um, you will see a little bit negative uh, load down there, kind of like a, a little knee at the bottom right after it pounds. You'll see a little knee and then it goes up and goes flat on the card. But um, so, you know, there's there's debates if you get into this artificial lift community. They, these these engineers love to pick things apart and debate it. And is there really compression? Is there not compression? Sure. Doesn't show in the cards, but theoretically it should. But really on, on tagging, though, there there is compression and, yeah. and especially um you know especially if you don't have sinker bars sometimes you'll find wells tagging with three quarter inch rods connected straight to the pump i mean you really got to be cautious on that because you've got a lot of bending and flexing uh with those three quarter inch at least uh sinker bars better able to withstand it and, and not going to bend as much so 
Just I want to hit on the sinker bars you just touched right there because design comes to mind for me. You mentioned like gas separators. Um, you mentioned like uh, the sinker bars or fiberglass or steel. Um, you know, I saw a lot of different philosophies on the best way to space out um, pumps, to design a gas separator, to um, add sinker bars. And uh, I, I guess, you know, optimization is a big part of it on like your set points you have for it, um, you know, how you run it. Uh, but another part is just comes down to design. Um, mm -hmm. so, and let's just assume here you don't have a sump because you put it in the sump if it's down there. You know, you don't need a gas, gas separator. Talk to me about just like general design understanding that you've gained through your experience that has worked really well. Um, just on the different types of, of wells, like a gassy well and a non-gassy well. Like talking or about a design. rod string design or what type of design? Uh, yeah, I think pump, rod string, gas separator, just any insights Ooh, you want to throw at us. Anything, my gosh. Um, some good uh, that people are probably not doing that you have learned, right? Oh man, you know, I don't know if I've got it's uh, a rod string design is is kind of interesting. I mean, typically you're looking at a predictive program, you're yep. coming up with a design, and then a lot of times it's cookie cutter, just spread out across the field. Uh, most people, I think, run too many sinker bars on bottom. Okay. Um, they they run a lot of them, and I don't think you necessarily what need. What program them. do you think, use, Sean? Uh, you know, I don't, uh, gosh, like Rod Star and stuff. I think it costs like $5,000 a year. So I don't, uh, I don't, have, been exposed to I don't have an annual subscription to that. Um, and I've got some people that work at uh, pump shops or something. If I need something sure. done, they can, they can run or oil companies. They've got the program. I can, I can run something to them. Uh, if I do usually do something, it's actually Q Rod, which is a free okay. program from Echometer. I'd highly recommend it's highly simplified. It doesn't give you all of the features you want. Um, and if you have like a really intricate rod design, you can't, you can't do it, but you can input fiberglass and then you can do like a, a taper, you know, seven, eights, three quarters, and then sinker bars, you, but you couldn't have like uh, fiberglass, seven, eights, three quarters, seven, eights, sinker bars or something like that. So it, it's, uh, and then you can only, you can only simulate at a thousand foot depths, but it's a great program. It's very quick and it's free. So um, you can't, you can't hate on that, but Rod design is kind of uh, interesting. I mean, you can do fiberglass uh, or all steel. I mean, a lot of people use fiberglass just due to um, the fact they're much lighter. You have a smaller pumping unit and um, on the deeper wells, that sort of thing. If you get to shallower wells, people tend to stick with steel, which I think makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't know. It's, uh, I think too, people used to be sinker bars. I, I also used to know when I used to work on pulling units, I kind of actually enjoyed this process though, but when you're coming out of hole with the rods, I would always be up there on the rig floor and I'd be wiping the rods down, you know, cause you want to look for bad rods. Yep. Um, I don't think that's too commonly done. I, you know, the company man usually just tells the hands to, Hey, let me know if there's some bad rods, you know, some pitting or something, we'll lay it down. And a lot of times, if, you know, I don't know, depending on what they're talking about on the rig floor, they're not paying attention. They, maybe they are, if they're a good crew, but I always kind of enjoyed it to actually wipe them down and see where they're worn Yep. where there's pitting but a lot of times i did notice that when you would have a taper change you know from a, a smaller diameter to a bigger diameter like say if you went from three quarter inch to sinker bars a lot of times those lower three quarter inch rods hmm. would have wear right in the middle of, of the rods you know when a, when a rod buckles typically your 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 couplings are going to engage the tubing because they're the yep. biggest diameter um but also the middle of the rod's going to flex and so you would see more you'd see more wear right there in the middle of the rod and a lot of times associated pitting and corrosion. 
But so, I mean, I, I kind of always liked the idea of maybe, you know, um, if you're going to have a big taper change, like from three quarters to inch and a half sinker bars, and maybe you put some seven eighths to kind of mm. distance it out because where you have that big taper change, uh, I tended to notice more flexing of the skinnier rods right above that taper change. So, I mean, and there's a, there's a lot of stuff with rod design. It's hard to know like what's, what's best. Cause a lot of times with failures, it's hard to actually pinpoint like what's yeah, absolutely. Because it's three, four years. You don't know what has happened with it. You don't know exactly the way it's been set for those, those three years. I'm, I'm totally with you. It's hard to get that. Uh, that you, you know, when it's, when it's a brand new well though, you do have the ability to see how things, when it, you have perfectly new equipment going in, assuming it's yeah. not rerun inspected rods, but um you know one thing that i always recommend is if uh you know on a brand new well first time you pull tubing scan it out a hole though you know and you kind of get an idea of where your rod wear is and that sort of thing because you ran in perfectly new tubing kind of right. see what the, the initial scan looks like out you know a lot of people smaller companies people they don't want to spend the money they just want to hydro test back in and test the the, the tubing with pressure but uh, scan it out because you got that initial scan where you had brand new tubing and you can kind of see what the the wear pattern is showing up because that's probably going to be something you're, you'll deal with the rest of the life of the well. Um, but it's hard because there's a lot of factors going on in a well. Um, it, you know, um, there can be tagging. Of course, every well can be different with how corrosive the fluids are, you know. Um, and there's just, there's all sorts of factors and not every well is, you, you might think you have the perfect rod design on one well and you run it in another and it's not working well. The wellboards aren't the same, you know, yeah. and a lot of it is based on how straight the hole is. That that is one of the biggest issues, and everybody wants to, you know, drill their their, you know, twenty thousand foot well and and get the rig off in in fifteen twenty days, and they put a lot of crooked spots in the well. And I mean, a lot of times their their goal is gas lift, and and that's not necessarily an issue with gas lift, but later on in the life of the well, you want to pull the bottom hole pressure down. I mean, you're going to have to rod pump it likely so, you, uh, you mentioned the twenty thousand footers uh you got any rules of thumb for like places to put your pump when you got uh you know a horizontal wheel because i've heard it range greatly so, i think usually above the curve like before you start kicking off yeah because it, it, it it's i mean obviously initially when it's got high 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 pressure bottom hole pressure yeah you certainly don't want to be in the curve because of solids but also due to deviation mm -hmm. um and if you've got a plunger that's that's kind of going up and down in the barrel like this yeah, you'll see barrels just split oh yeah pump, pump barrels split so and then also i mean just the rod wear 60 percent 55 what's that 60 percent deviation 55 percent deviation oh man i am no expert on this at all all right I, I do not have any experience running them down in there. I've checked wells that that have. And uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, this is going to be another economic situation. You're going to try yeah. and have to know what is your existing failure rate? How much additional production do you get by yeah. dropping it down into that? Deviation? You're only getting an extra 200 feet or so. Say you go from it's not that much down to 70%. Like, what are you truly gaining from a height perspective? That's what I've always had to challenge people on. It's like, why are you putting like an extra? You know, I, I agree. And if you want to reduce your bottom hole pressure or by a decent amount you could drop the flow line pressure from 100 to zero yeah. with the compressor play with the surface before you can play with play with the bottom right yeah yeah you can get the bottom hole pressure down just by dropping the surface casing pressure um and so it, it gets it gets real risky down there but i mean if you've got a good uh like a high inflow performance type well high productivity well um it can certainly make sense but that 
it's just going to depend on your formation, but you start getting into a lot of issues and you, you really, you can risk the, uh, Mm-hmm. you know fishing jobs and that sort of thing you, you stick things down there where, where solids start to accumulate and if you stick it you know sometimes you fish a well you, you never get it back so yep. you gotta be real careful when you start playing down there um i would always say just try and keep it above the curve if you do maybe go in a little bit but yeah you gotta be real you know and and maybe you know like instead of going to the curve fix the gas separation issue because then you'll you'll basically drop the pump intake pressure maybe even more if you have gas interference um because you're holding fluid above the pump due to the fact that, that you can't pump it off with gas interference so there's a there's a lot of considerations there and that's just going to come down to economics but it gets risky down there. so Great. most people stay most people stay above and you know there's people that are kind of experts in dealing dealing with that sort of thing and like rod designs but then you start getting into rod guides and you know you'll have these interesting rod strings where you'll you'll have the sinker bar you know your normal rod string sinker bars and then before you kick off into the horizontal then you'll have seven eights guided rods and mm-hmm. you get into some weird weird type of stuff that's not normal yep but yeah i, I don't have the expertise to know kind of what the failure rate is I, I don't hear back on that sort of stuff so yeah well, good, man. Uh, what can you tell any of the listeners, you know, centric to rod pump optimization, failure diagnostics, fluid level shots, anything we just talked about? What would be something that like would just be like very helpful to those who are going, trying to go from novices to I know my shit on rod pumps? Like what what's some stuff through your experience you've learned that was just so hardly earned that you could give to us pretty freely? What's something that we? Oh, have? my goodness. Uh, um, I mean, you just have to really understand the system, I would say, in, in the different components. Rod pumping is pretty basic, you know, I mean, you got a well, you got tubing, you got you're going pumping, up and down. <laughs> you're pumping yeah. the tubing, but like, it's all simple. Like if you look at a downhole pump, it hasn't changed in a hundred years. You got yep. balls and seats and a plunger. I mean, there's nothing fancy about it. Yeah. It gets more complicated though. When you start tying everything in together. But really, you need to understand, I think the most important thing is to understand pump operation and dynamometer cards, because they tell you what's happening down the hole. Um, I think it's also very critical to understand, um, you know, gas separation theory, yes. um, sand separation, that's, that's another big issue. Um, but there's just, there's a lot of variables you can play with as to where you're going to set your pump what type of separator you're going to run. There's lots of different gas separators, solid separators, or where you can go with kind of, um, you know, old poor boy style gas separators, build your own from the pump shop. Um, there's just a lot of different components. Of course, you get into pumps, there's metallurgies, you get into rod strings, there's different rod grades, um, fiberglass and steel. You've got different types of coatings that you can put on, on tubing for failure prevention. Um, pumping unit, what's the philosophy? How big do you want it? How long of a stroke length do you want it? How fast do you want it? to run it um you know so i don't i don't know if i can impart a whole lot uh except i I would say you really need to understand the pump and how to interpret it and then understand the system um the basics of it because i mean a lot of the stuff we deal with it is the basics but you just need to get good at understanding the basics and, and and optimizing the basics and really a lot of it is just um you know, getting a design, seeing how the design works, getting feedback from the well, and then making improvements upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not always easy to say what the best design is for any specific situation. What's the best gas separator if you're sitting above the perfs? Um, there's a lot of 
good models, I think. Um, and I've seen them all, and I've seen them all work pretty good. And I've, I've seen pretty much all of them not work very good. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's, there's different things you can do um, to try and further improve gas separation, but, you know, sometimes it's risky, like, uh, you know, uh, you can set a TAC below the gas separator. Um, that way, you know, you can have something called liquid holdup, where the TAC is basically a bottleneck. So mm. if you make a lot of gas, you know, if your TAC is like right up, right up here, and your pump intake's down here, mm. you know, there's a, there's a small annular clearance around that TAC, because it, it has to be big. It's engaging with the casing and it's got, it's got bow springs and it's got, uh, it's yeah. got its slips that are engaged into the casing. Well, you've got small annular clearances right there. And then you've got gas that's trying to go vertically through there. Um, you've got a liquid column that's sitting on top that potentially wants to fall by it. Um, and you've got kind of a, a bottleneck right there. So, I mean, one way to remove this sort of uh, liquid holdup issue due to that restriction of the TAC is if you can take that TAC and put it below your pump intake. Uh, but of course, if you do that, now you're anchoring, you've got your, your uh, gas separator anchored in tension, which yeah. anytime you anchor something that's got perforations in it, that it has to have holes for I the intake. Know. Yeah, you, you run into uh, risky situations where, you know, if that TAC gets a little stuck or you have a lot of corrosive fluid, the next time you get on it, you try and unset your anchor you just twist, twist off, and then you don't come out with the anchor, and then you've got a fishing job. So, I mean, in that situation, then you've got to weigh how bad is the gas interference? Do we think that's the cause, and do we want to risk that? How bad is the gas interference reducing our production versus, and, and how likely do we think that it's, is there a lot of solids issues, and is the fluid really corrosive, or do we think this, you know, the, the equipment comes out pretty clean, we don't expect to have any issues on setting the TAC, and we're willing to take the risk. So there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different factors, you know, there's different pump designs too, but a lot of times, you know, kind of sticking with the basics, you know, the fancier you, sometimes you make things, the more things that can break. Sure. You know, I, I hear so you. A lot of the old timers say, keep it simple. And I've seen some fancy gas, gas compression pumps, double compression. And, um, sometimes you'll find that the gas compression pumps and then you know they're spaced out from the the top of the pump usually you space the plunger to the bottom these are spaced out to the top those are sometimes the uh, most of the time i found gas locking cards very few times it doesn't happen very like true gas lock which we can go into if you want but uh you find that very infrequently but most of the times that i I have found that it's, it's with some of these specialty pumps. Yeah. Uh, there's also, you know, like there's bottom discharge valves. I've got one customer that likes bottom discharge valves. They were running uh, three bottom discharge valves. Are you familiar with that? No, tell me about it. Okay. So it's basically, it's uh, like you've got your normal pump barrel and it's on the bottom of the pump barrel and it's a little valve that squirts some of the liquid out. So most of, most of the time your production is going up through the plunger, up through the top yes. of the pump. Yes. But these bottom discharge valves will actually squirt fluid around. So a lot of times, if you want to do a pump change, you try and unseat the pump and you'll find that that pump is stuck in the bottom joint of tubing, mm -hmm. you know, because you seat the pump in the seating nipple. And um, basically that pump, though, if you get solids that build up around the OD of that, that pump barrel, when you try and unseat it, it's stuck. Um, and so the original purpose of the bottom discharge valve is to maybe shoot out, I don't know, 10, 15% of the production fluid out through this little valve at the bottom of the barrel 
to to keep solids from settling down there. Yeah, keep that makes them, sense. Okay. Yeah, it makes it makes makes sense. Well, this one customer, oh, they were afraid of of uh, not, they were afraid of uh, basically um, compression on the bottom rods, you know. And I I don't think it was founded, but um, they were kind of sold on this that um, you know as the plunger is moving back into the barrel. Um, all the fluid has to move through the plunger. And so if you're moving at a fast rate, you're creating compression basically in that valve rod that's attached to the plunger or the bottom rods, which could lead to buckling, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and they got soles on bottom discharge valves and they started installing three of them. But these bottom discharge valves, if they break, you've got a hole in your barrel. So then basically right. your pump is shot. But also I've, I've found in, and they've subsequently decrease three failure points to it you, right? say you had three failure points and it's happened many times where where, where mm. one of them fails and now all of a sudden you've got a pump change that you didn't need yep uh, but also there's a lot of other times where these valves whatever reason um you'll, you'll get a car that looks like delayed traveling valve closure uh, basically you'll see a delayed pickup in the fluid load into the upstroke so the pump the plunger might be 10 percent into the upstroke and the fluid load is picked up typically that's associated with trash or sand in the traveling valve but, uh, you know, in some of these wells, sometimes I'll see it happen every stroke in the same spot. And it appears to be that it's this bottom discharge valve not seating initially. And you're, so you're, then you're creating like an upstroke impact. Um, and so sometimes you try to do things to benefit one aspect, and then you end up shooting yourself in the that's foot good. in other aspects. And that's I why you just, you, you got to be, really sure. that's why a lot of old timers will say, you got to keep it simple. You know, like don't, don't overcomplicate things. Don't run, don't put too much jewelry on your pump. You know, you get some yeah. of these fancy pumps and then there's something breaks and then not working too well anymore. So just keep it basic. And the more, the more failure points you have, um, the more likely there is for something to go wrong. You know, I think that's a, a really good message is like, keep it simple. Um, you add failure points, you're adding, you know, the, probably the frequency of which you have to pull that, that pump. So keep your failure points to a minimum. Um, yeah, the old timers probably have something right there, which is the keep it simple part. So yeah, that's really yeah. Sharp. the one thing yeah. I was thinking of for my, if I had a piece of advice to share with anybody, it'd be follow your pump from the well to the shop. Like one yeah. of the best things I ever did was actually go to the shop, tear down those pumps, understand them, um, understand that the failure behind it. Uh, and, and it really kind of led me to to have a different understanding, a better perspective, I would say, of like sure. is truly going on downhole. Like what I dealt with was a lot of coal fines. Um, we were pumping a, uh, a coal formation in San Juan. And like it really made sense to me when we went down and tore down the the, the pump. Why uh, we were having so much clogged and stuff. So anyways, I, that was the oh, down. Tell me about what, so, what did you learn coal fines? Because that, that's a very particular type a very fine solid that I don't think too yeah. many people have experience with. Super fine. Imagine just like, you know, the, you open a bag of charcoal, right? At the very bottom is just all this powder. That's what gets stuck in those pumps. And from what we saw, it was very much either event-based where like, you know, the well had been down for a while and you just let that thing come on, run at full strokes for a minute. You just kind of like dropping the pressure in the formation, that coal formation really quickly. And you kind of get this sediment like departing from that formation that comes up in your pump. And then the consequence of that was as soon as you shut it down, that thing just settles down. Just all that stuff just sells right on it. So uh, it was kind of a bit based on that. And we also learned a lot on like 
these pumps can't settle for long. You can't have a two hour shut in. You can't have a half a day shut in. They really have to keep moving, which I think you were talking a lot about like, um, you know, uh, risk tolerance, economics. And it's like, yeah, we were pumping in a gas, you know, we, we were having gas interference the, basically the entire time we were pumping, but it's like, what's the alternative? Yeah. Is the alternative to just let like the coal fines like stick behind your pump? Um, so it was, uh, it was a challenge, but I would say we, we learned to uh, be consistently pumping rather than, um, you know, let's get it up to seven or eight short for a minute and then shut it in for an hour. Uh, we really tried. Were you, you using variable speed drives? Or? Yeah, so we had VFDs um, okay. that significantly helped keep them on for longer. But some of those other pumps, uh, they didn't have VFDs, so we just controlled it by minimum off time. So five, ten, fifteen minutes um, for those that didn't have VFDs. What about power failures? Oh, you mean like you know our electrical electricity goes grid goes down? I mean that's like you just yeah. stick the whole field, you know? Yeah, well, you would find like it wasn't every event. Like you found that like it was, um, you know, every time a well gets shut in for a day, it wasn't gonna you know fully stick up. But what you found was like if it was, you give it enough chances to fail, it's going to eventually it's gonna just block up. Yeah. yeah so that was a uh, that was fun to operate those. Uh, learned a lot about pump flushes. Uh, we got a lot of wells back that way. Um, the backside? Huh? By flushing the backside? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so we were just like, uh, no, sorry, we would unseat the pump and then flush down. Okay. Um, okay. So that was something we we continually tried uh, when it was when it was preparing to stick, so it hadn't stuck yet, right? But we were like, man, that's starting to that's starting to get a little uh, um, the loads getting a little heavy and such. So that was kind of some learnings there for us. But what did you do on the pump design? What about your clearance? Oh man, do you, do you, uh, re you recall you recall these sort of things? Because a lot of times they say if if you've got you know, larger solids, you can run a tighter clearance to try and prevent it from getting between the plunge and the barrel. But if you have very fine solids, you need a, uh, if you have a tight clearance between your plunger barrel, you can um, basically those solids will, will stick it. So you want a, a looser clearance to allow them to, if they get there, kind of work their, work their way down and not yeah, just. So we did have larger clearances. What we, what I focused the most on was actually on the, the downhole separator side. Okay. Um, because a lot of it was like uh, the longer our, our downhole separator, like we kind of had like bought ourselves time for that sediment to kind of like slowly build up. Um, so I think you have like your dip tube, right? And like you wouldn't want it to go too far down because if you had it too far down, like eventually it would just kind of plug off with what sediment yeah. was coming out. And whenever you pulled your, uh, your downhole separators, like you'd always have like feet of, of sediment in there. Um, so it was, it was a balance of like, it, it was, it was fun to pump, but I think yeah. we're finding rod pump uh, or sorry, uh, rods weren't the problem. Like it was the pump and the downhole separator that, that was always going to fail first. Right. Did, did you try to separate, did you try and separate the solids out? I mean, there is no separating out basically oh. flour, right? I mean, it's like, you can't have like a, a D sander because it's so fine that you're not going to shake it out. Right. Yeah, I mean, all we had downhole was basically your 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 gas separator with that um, uh, your what's your downhole velocity, right? What you said, like two three feet, feet per minute or feet per second. Sorry, yeah. It's like you would allow that sediment to try and like fall out too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it was a challenge, but uh, what we what I would say learning wise was like keep them running, um, don't charge too hard, like right off the start, 
um, those kind of events can, can really set you up. And then, um, you know, doing pump flushes really helped us out, like doing some preventative failure. It was like, Hey, I think our load's starting to build up. Let's get a flush on this thing before she really starts to lock up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, it's just kind of unique experience. Cause that, that was up in Colorado, right? Yeah. San Juan Basin is kind of the, uh, Farmington, um, New Mexico and then Durango, Colorado. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's actually some uh, cool coal formations up in uh, PA that are being produced, um, similarly to what San Juan's doing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I don't don't have any experience. I've read some papers about it. You know, like yeah. I mean, they're very uh, particular with their pump designs. Totally. Sort of formations, trying to handle that sort of thing. You know, what's right. interesting about the cool stuff is like how much water it produces initially. It's just dumping water. It's just like you know, you start it up getting very little gas, very little gas, all water, all water, all water. You drop it to a low enough pressure and then the gas kind of is released and then you're getting it. But, you know, your first, when you're deliquifying the entire field and kind of dropping that pressure, it's just a ton of water, ton of water. Did, and then did, did, did it make oil or is it pure water and gas? Oh, it was just straight methane. Just methane and water yeah. though. No, no yeah. oil. I don't recall any. That's interesting. You know, that's got to add other complications too. Cause I mean, of course, water can be corrosive, like oil's not. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know. I mean, you've got your whole tubing string and rods constantly sitting in a bath of water mm -hmm. and gas. Of course, you have gas interference. So, but yeah, that's a different type of play. Probably hard to keep those uh, stuffing boxes lubricated up there if you don't have any oil. To... Uh, it was a good, good play. Interesting. Um, I, would, I mean, I think it goes back to the messaging you have is like, I think everybody is operating uh, wells in a unique way that is fit for their business, fit for their basin, fit for their purpose. Um, I think there's a lot to be uh, learned from what everyone is doing. I think what you were kind of saying about keeping it simple, um, you know, using your troubleshooting tools via your fluid level, as well as comboing it with your cards, buy a freaking POC. I mean, let's, let's be, be honest, guys, there's no, no better substitute for that. Um, you know, I think, I think those are some really good takeaways from, from this conversation. Uh, was there anything you thought like, uh, you know, we, we kind of missed on that would be really useful for anybody to kind of pick up on as we, um, uh, we kind of close out and then thinking forward, you know, we'll obviously have a, a second podcast here in coming months or something and, and do a follow-up when there's questions and everything, but anything we missed you, you're thinking of top of mind? Um, uh... I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I would, I would say, oh, I'm, I'm a well tech. Uh, yeah, do fluid levels, do dynamometer tests. Yeah. And um, I, I would say, make sure you do regular tests to some degree, but tabulate the data chronologically by mm -hmm. well. And, um, you know, let me, uh, so we're, we're, we're about to we're about to round out this podcast. Right, you're cool. I mean, uh, right yeah. Now. I, let, let me let me show something real quick though. Yeah, let's see it. Let's see it. And and just everybody needs to do this though, because I mean, you can get and I, part of the problem I think people don't. Let's see if I can. Uh, let me share screen. And you seeing that? Yeah, I got your sunset pickup. Let's see if that works. How does that work? I got you. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is basically the way I record all the fluid level and dynamometer information. And I highly recommend everybody do the same. But 
you know, you could record it by well date. And of course, these spreadsheets can get quite expansive. And I've got some with, you know, 100, te 100 tests for one well. Wow. Um, but you, you can easily track, you know, the rows, just to break this spreadsheet down real quick, but the runtime, the POC settings, you know, your strokes per minute, stroke length, pump size, seating nipple depth. So you can basically look at a well quickly. You can see exactly, uh-oh, you can see exactly where it is um, with its pumping parameters. If you make changes, you, you can quickly recognize it. If you deepen the seat nipple, change the pump size, that sort of thing. Um, but you know, you got your tubing pressure, casing pressure, here's your fluid level information. Um, you can quickly get a bird's eye view of a lease, you know, where you've got high fluid levels or which ones are pumped yeah, off. Yeah, liquid above pump, 3,000 yeah. feet, man. Well, under, yeah, look, it's under pumping. Yeah, you could say it's, you could say it's under pumping 50%. Um, and just an unbelievable amount of fluid above the pump. Wow. 100 and so 100% fillage. But yeah, you can get your basic fluid level information. Yeah. E flap, fluid level from surface, pump intake pressure, producing bottom pressure, gas, uh, and then fillage. And then, you know, I, I mean, I usually, uh, you know, make a comment and then here, here's the full comments from the report, but just to highlight things. Um, but but I think a lot of people don't get fluid level dynamometer information because they're all stuck in random PDF reports mm -hmm. and they're not util utilizing it effectively. You know, for example, here's another well where uh, there's a lot more tests on one well. Um, also, so you can see where, you know, uh, things have been changed, pump sizes have been changed. Uh, but also, you know, each one of these lines right here represents a pull. So I can go and I can quickly look if the well's tested, let's say, you test it every month or two months, you can quickly kind of just visually see how mm -hmm. long it's running before each failure. And then also you can record, you know, on for this particular company, I didn't have pull reports, but you can record like hole in tubing, what the depth is. And so this is kind of like the go-to sheet, you know, for one of my main sure. customers, I check their wells monthly and uh, I record all of their failures, what the depth was, and I can quickly go and look at a, a well. I can see its runtime. I know exactly what it's running at, where the fluid level's hanging, how the pump fillage is doing. And I can quickly see where the failures are and about how long it runs and see if there's a correlation between the failures. But mm -hmm. this should be the standard go-to sheet um, before any pull. But, but the thing is, it's like a lot of people get the, the fluid level dynamometer data and it just stays in a random PDF. And then people don't yeah. know where the PDFs are. And obviously, how do you see a trend on something when you got to open eight PDFs and then try and compare data? And so people need to be extrapolating that or extracting that data and plotting it in. And it doesn't take long to do when yeah. you're doing the test, but ultimately the value is, is what comes out of here. And that's what we're trying to get with this sort of testing is, is to get the value out of it. But you can really, you know, look at a whole lease and you can see how wells are trending um, and so that would be my, my last recommendation is Holy man, gather data, measure the data and understand performance. I mean, how can you understand what direction you're headed in? If you can't understand the past and what, what's, what do you, what have you been doing? That's, you've that's got to, yeah, you've got to see the trends. You know, one other thing, um, it's not in this spreadsheet, but for other customers, I've got another, uh, I've got another column in here where, um, trials have been done, or let's say they've got six different gas separators in the field. I'll put the gas separator type. That way I can see the gas separator and then I can see the fillage right. and the fluid level. And then they change the gas separator and I have that marked and I can see, are we doing better? Are we not sure. doing better? Sure. Um, you can also do, if you have little trials on different style pumps, you can make a comment for that. Um, you can put oil, water, and gas production. I don't know why you think this gas free liquid above pump is going up. 
we got 360 or so now we're up here at 2000 what's happening uh so well this is time right here this is going down in time so oh okay time. we're getting better oh okay yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. high fluid level so you've been yeah, crushing what you're saying we started off in 1500 so you can yeah. see right here they're at uh eight eight point i don't know if my is my mouse showing up yeah i see eight six there yeah, yeah eight six hundred and seven you can see that they all of a sudden after wow. the first test they're like hey wait a minute and they crank this thing up mm -hmm. and then eventually down here they they stroked they it out to the whole yeah. and they're eventually making progress but yeah that uh, looks really good you can see it, that but it, 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 it's very simple but not enough people do it and they just yeah it, that, that, that's why i think a lot of people don't apply it because but when, when a well fails the engineer can go straight to the spreadsheet and they can see exactly what they need to know mm -hmm. and they know if they've got gas interference or they've got anything else and um or, or maybe you're pumped off with a low runtime hey it's it's we, let's downsize and then you can look at the dynamometer cards but let's downsize the pump we don't need totally. that pump if we got a lot of fiberglass rods we've got a lot of rod stretch you know we can reduce the loads and we'll make up for it with a little extra runtime it won't be a problem mm -hmm. but it's really about using the data and this is what i don't see enough people doing this is mm -hmm. part of the reason that i think i'm so popular with my customers totally. is because every time i test a well it goes into their spreadsheet and so the longer I, I work from, the more expansive it gets. But then there's like a, a true chronological history of these wells and their performance. And this is the basis to what to look at before you pull the well. Because the most valuable thing, I, I, I don't know if it's the most valuable, one of the most valuable things about fluid level dynamometer, dynamometer information is not about making adjustments currently to the well. It's about what we're going to do next time. Because when the well is pulled, if you don't have the data, what do you do? You pull the equipment out, you find the broken part, you replace it, you run it back in. Mm -hmm. But 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 you need the feedback to know is that the right thing that we want to do right now? Yeah. Um, and so uh, anyway, it's just something. And if we're if we're gonna shut it down, I will I will just throw out there. Um, if you go to my website, uh, downholediagnostic.com, you know it shouldn't be hard to find. Should, I think you can usually type in. Just fluid type in raw pump with Google. It's pretty sure it's the top top. Yeah, thing. fluid level yeah. dynamometer in Google, and yeah. you'll, you'll find me. But you know, uh, under the oil field pictures right here, I mean, I've yeah. got a lot of pictures of dynamometer cards, um, and we can go into those next time if you want. Totally. Um, but anyways, you can cycle through these. I've got a lot of cool oil field pictures in general. Um, uh, I've got a, a very popular rod pumping brochure. A lot of people know me from that. Downloaded uh, that. That's the best. Yeah, yeah it is the best. course there. Are you doing a course? What's happening with that? Sean, uh, and then, yeah, my course. There? So, yeah, I've got a, I've got a really cool... Um, I've got a pretty amazing, I, it is amazing, it's taking forever, but yeah, I've got a really good uh, rod pumping uh, course that'll be coming out hopefully this year. I've been working on it for about three years. It's going to yeah. basically go into the ins and outs of fluid level shots, dynamometer test. I'm going to basically teach everybody how to do what I do exceedingly well, and they can put me out of business, but uh, basically, yeah, yeah, get me out of the field maybe eventually. Um, <laughs> Once I don't have any business and I got all these other people running around competing with me, but basically teach the ins and the outs. And of course, um, going into the ins and the outs of uh, fluid level dynamometer, you have to understand the ins and the outs of rod pumping. So, I mean, it basically goes into, uh, of course, deep dive fluid level shots, dynamometer test, but also into, you know, downhole pumps, pump cycles, um, basically every facet of it, the echo meter software, uh, section on gas separation, solid separation, section on POCs, um, especially, you know, interacting with some of the common ones out there, how to troubleshoot them quickly, troubleshoot wells, diagnose yep. failures, 
uh, to optimize wells, that sort of thing. So it's going to go into everything. Hopefully, it'll come out this summer. Um, we'll we will see. We need it, Sean. Three years it out, man. Yeah, I'm trying. It's it's a good course, though. I can't. I just can't do it fast. I try to. It's it's not. It's entertaining, at least. I've got good quality pictures. This is good. Uh, these slides are kind of based on it, but uh, well, there's a lot yeah. of slides, but I didn't show here today. But um, anyways, but yeah, it, it'll be coming. If you're interested, you can just sign up on my website. Um, okay. And when it when it comes out, uh, an email will go out. I won't spam you. I, I don't do that sort of thing. So anyway. Uh, I love it, man. Yeah, I remember when I first, uh, you know, the reason I reached out to Sean was when, the, when I first started um, working the, the raw pump fields over in San Juan. I was just looking for resources and his <coughs> website was really the first thing that popped up um so yeah. yeah great resource out there guys highly would recommend it um i think you know the the big takeaways for me um you know if we look at today you know keeping it simple um you know do your troubleshooting track your troubleshooting i think that was a really big takeaway at the very end there just on like gathering data and leveraging Pretty it cool. yeah because so much data is acquired but then tossed almost like it's just it's just gone but like if you if you stack that trend up, you start understanding why things are performing. So I think that's a really, really great one right there. Well, on that topic, what's your challenge on like, you know, those who are just gathering like Xbox data, you know, it's a massive database of historical information, you know, load all this, you know, is that enough? Uh, because what's missing there is fluid level, right? You don't really have that trend. Is yeah. there, you know, is there, it's good. It's better than nothing, but is there anything missing there when you're looking at those who have Xbox or something? You know, I, I, I'd never uh, managed with Xbox. I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if you can insert comments like fluid level shot this date and put it. I don't even know what the, the trends or historical data looks like. But sure. I mean, if you can put notes in there, that would be surely helpful if you've got a plot of, of runtime and average pump fillage and, and whatever. You can look at that over days, weeks, months. Um, and if you can put in fluid level shots, that's certainly going to be helpful. But yeah, you, you, you definitely... Uh, you know, some things are just easier in Excel in a way than than maybe you can do. I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with Xbox, but with Excel, yeah. you know, like I, you, there's a column where I can highlight there's a problem like tagging. Well, mm. you know, unless somebody actually takes the time to to highlight that comment um, in Xbox, you might just be seeing average fillage. It's not going to you don't have a trend of tagging. I mean, that's not something. There's an element of labeling out. the performance um, and, you know, with, with a tag or or a low fillage or high fluid level and what that, that number is. So that, that's a, uh, yeah, again, I think the tracking is phenomenal must do. Um, yeah. And I think, I think uh, next, next time we, uh, we meet up, hopefully that course is, uh, is ready and I'm able to use it myself. Cause I, I could definitely use the training. Um, I think uh, the other piece I would love to talk about uh, on the following one is maybe just some interesting cases, you know, some interesting cards that you found that are commonly misdiagnosed or, you know, some hole and tubing shots that you saw, like, you know, pretty, pretty obvious and what you saw, but yeah, um, John, it's been awesome, man. Do you have anything yeah. else to hit the audience with before we, we close it out? That's it. That's it. Awesome, man. What a time. I you feel, probably, uh, yeah, it was a good conversation. It's actually, it's, uh, it's nice. It's pleasant. Yeah. yeah so. I feel uh, like I've been dumped on by the guru. So, uh, appreciate, uh, uh you sharing that knowledge with us. Um, my, my pleasure. Yeah, more, more and more people. I mean, I, I think more companies, more people need to put information out mm. to the public because you know the oil industry is not good at that. Everybody yeah. keeps things closed vest. You got these big service companies, and you go to their website, and there's nothing there. There's no information. So maybe I'll put a challenge out that some of Love these it. other companies that have resources put information out there. Um, you know, and as I as I compile 
my course, I'm always looking for good images. A lot of it comes from the diagnostic data I've been collecting, but I'm also looking for good images of, of pumps and separators and that sort of thing. And I can tell you that the companies that actually put out nice images are getting into my course and that sort of thing. And the ones that don't, the, yeah. your, your company name's not going to show up. So uh, put information out to the public and help Love people learn. Out. Love you know, and it, and, it, and it helps uh, helps get eyeballs and 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 and, and you know yeah. you become an authority that that people want to lean on. So um, put information out there. People are so close vest where they just don't want to reveal anything. Um, and there's a lot of younger people like I was myself that was hungry to find something, and I had to go to the library if you can imagine. That's that's crazy in yeah. modern times, but that's the oil industry. So you know you have yeah. to go papers and books. But I think we're all trying to get better, right? And it's hard to get better when everyone's trying to, you know, hold it to themselves. So I love the call out. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, maybe we get some names on that call out and really get them get them riled up. I'm all yeah, about I get, knock me off the front page of Google. I just do it. All about rubbing feathers. Um, cool, Sean. Well, I anyways, yeah, it was a pleasure. Pleasure, Spencer. Anyways.